So it's Thanksgiving. We're right there. And as two weeks ago I preached on gratitude, I want to talk about gratitude again. And I think it's obviously apropos at this time of year to focus on giving thanks. Now, you might remember the passage that I read two weeks ago comes from 1 Thessalonians 5. It's an interesting three verses. Verse 16 says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Not all circumstances are God's will for you, but in all circumstances, you are to rejoice and pray and give thanks. That's God's will for you, he says. The thing I want to call your attention to is this rejoicing side of gratitude because there is this joy, this celebration that goes along with gratitude, and that's what we're called to. This is to characterize our lives. Now, that's not always easy, and there are times of tragedy and suffering where, where it takes a miracle of grace for someone to live with joy, a struggling joy in the midst of it all. We recognize that, but this is that to which we are called. Now, next week, I intend to talk about that very issue, gratitude when confronted with tragedy and suffering and sorrow. But this morning, I just want to note this important aspect of joy. And then if you would turn over to Colossians chapter 3, in verse 16, Paul tells the Colossians they are to sing to God with gratitude in their hearts. And then in verse 17, he says this, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, giving thanks translates a Greek participle that modifies whatever you do in word or deed. What that means is this. Paul's point is not just when you are gathered in worship and singing, should you have gratitude in your heart, but everything you say and everything you do should be suffused with gratitude. There should be a note of thanksgiving about your entire life, not just in those times that you set apart to give thanks, but throughout your life. Everything you say and everything you do should be tinged with gratitude. Now, that is a characteristic way that Christians are to live. And so often, we don't live with that gratitude, and as a result, we don't experience all the joys that life should bring to us, that God intends for us, because as I've said, gratitude brings joy. I don't know if you've ever read anything by David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist. He's well, he's identified as a conservative. Some conservatives don't own him, but he's an interesting figure. He grew up in a secular Jewish home, but he went to uh, Episcopal schools growing up. He got married to a Jewish woman, and she was a little more intent on practicing the faith, and so he became more diligent in, in practicing his Jewish faith. 
But then his marriage fell apart and his life was in shambles. Professionally, everything was good, but only professionally. Well, it's a long story, but he remarried and the woman to whom he's married is a Christian. And interesting changes took place in David Brooks' life. He has not converted to Christianity. I want to say that, or at least it's not clear that he has. He seems to be walking this line between Judaism and Christianity. Interestingly, he's read many Christian theologians. He'll often quote them in his writings. He's an interesting, interesting, thoughtful man. Whether you agree with him on everything or not, he's a thoughtful man. And he wrote an excellent essay on gratitude. And in that essay, he says that gratitude is this song of joy in the heart that arises in response to a surprising kindness. And I like that, this song that's in the heart, this, this joy that rises up when there is a kindness, not just something good that happens, but there's a sense that this good comes from a personal source, maybe another person or from God. And it's a surprising kindness because you don't expect it. And that's why you're so grateful for it. And that's why you have joy. But he points out in the essay that this gratitude and the joy that goes with it is inversely proportional to our expectations. He says, you know, when I travel, when, I'll, when I stay in a luxury hotel, I'm often, often less content, less happy about it than when I stay in a budget hotel. He says, when I'm in a luxury hotel, it frustrates me when I've got to look everywhere to try to find a power outlet or when I can't figure out how to work the shower. How do these knobs turn on the water? Or when he says the hotel is too snooty to have a coffee maker in each room. He has these expectations. And, and if they don't meet all his expectations, he says, I get grumpy. It's an interesting word that he uses, grumpy. Because it's not far removed from what the Old Testament uses when it speaks of ingratitude. It talks about people who grumble. To grumble is to be ungrateful. And he says, I just get grumpy when I'm at a hotel like that. But he says, when I go to a budget hotel, an iron that actually works is a bonus. And if they've got a waffle maker in the breakfast area, man, you have, you have it made. I mean, that's a treat. So he goes to this luxury hotel, his expectations are so high and he's unhappy. He goes to a budget hotel, his expectations are low and he's happy because he can be surprised. This gets to that idea of entitlement. Some people feel so entitled as if they are sitting on a throne and that all the world is to bring offerings to, them, to their feet and lay them down. They are so entitled that they can't be surprised by any kindness because they expect kindness. They expect gifts, good things. They expect things to go their way. And so they're never happy about that. That's the baseline. That's the way it ought to be. I'm entitled to that. I expect that. 
But then when things don't go their way, they are filled with frustration and anger. There's no gratitude. Instead, there is grumbling and complaining. A few years ago, a woman made an appointment to come see me, and and I don't even remember now what she came to talk about, but I will never forget that meeting. She started telling her story, and that story was a long one. It was a story of woe. It was a litany of suffering. God had failed her. Her family had betrayed her. Her friends weren't friends at all. Her colleagues, they would stab her in the back. And she had details for every one of these things. Now, I didn't interrupt her. I let her talk for a while because who am I to judge? I've complained far too many times, still do. And so I understand that someone in pain may actually, you know, just need to get it out. But after a while, I'm thinking, you know, we're just digging this ditch deeper. I try to make some gentle statements to to pierce through this cloud of darkness, but she just brushed them aside quickly. She was not going to be satisfied. I thought about the psalmist who said, my soul refused to be comforted. And let me tell you, her soul refused. She was not going to be comforted. She was angry and she was bitter and it was everybody else's fault because her expectations were so high. And if God didn't do what she wanted and if human beings acted like human beings and fell short, she wasn't, she wasn't gonna let that go. Finally, I decided that I needed to be a bit more forthright. I don't even know if it was wise. I still don't know if it was wise, but I, I just flat out said, you know, you're not gonna get anywhere this way. I said, you not only are complaining about everything that's happened to you, but you're judging everyone who hasn't lived up to your standards. At first, at first she wanted to double down and say, no, you don't understand, but I was persistent. The tears began to flow. She said, well, what am I supposed to do? We talked about that for a while, but as we talked, I could see she was, she was holding it off. By the time we finished, it was over an hour, and I, I said, listen, I would be glad to speak with you another time if you'd like to talk with me. And she said, thank you. And as she walked out, I knew I would never see her again. I knew it, and I haven't. Because I just became part of the narrative. Now it's the pastor who didn't understand who, who didn't really understand my pain and my suffering. She was a woman without gratitude, therefore without joy, living in darkness and anger and bitterness and grief. I don't know all the pain that went into making her the person she was. But I do know this, you will never get out of that dark place until you learn, until you learn gratitude for what God gives and for what other people give. But entitlement, high expectations, 
That's the opposite of that. When you set it up here and everything has to be just so, you will never, ever, ever feel the joy that belongs to the truly thankful person. It just isn't going to happen. Now, there's an orthodox overreaction to what I just said. The orthodox overreaction is this. You should not think you're entitled because you're not entitled. You are a sinner, and there's only one thing you deserve. You deserve everlasting death. So don't think you deserve anything. God gives to you because God is gracious and God is good, but he gives it in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. Now, I suppose, I suppose that kind of message, and I've heard some sermons like that. Have you? I suppose a message like that might, in some case, puncture someone who is just so hardened in their entitlement that they can't, they can't break out, I suppose. But I think that the person who deals with chronic shame is going to be backed into a, a corner and they're going to wither and they're going to break under that kind of gospel. It's not a gospel at all. See, what we do when we say things like that is we beat people down with a kind of worm theology. You are worthless. You deserve nothing, and you should be grateful for what you get. The problem is you're not going to be grateful because every gift that comes to you becomes a moment of shame. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve it. There's no joy with that, but rather a stoking of that discomfort and that, that sense of self-diminishment. That's that orthodox overreaction. By the way, it's very bad theology. It's bad theology because grace involves not just redemption, but also creation. Let me explain it this way. God has graciously intervened through Jesus Christ to save sinners like you and me. And we have sinned and we have fallen short and God loves us and saves us. But grace also creates us. Think about Psalm 139. The psalmist says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. See, God creates in grace. He gifts in his creation. When he made you, he made you as an act of overflowing love. And then we do sin, but God in grace redeems us from sin and he does it because we have great value to God. In 2019, in fact, it was tax day, April 15th, 2019, the world awoke to frightening video pictures of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris being consumed in flames. Do you remember that? Here is a cathedral that was built more than 800 years ago. It had survived the French Revolution. It had survived two world wars, and now it was burning in flames, and this ancient cathedral. The spire is collapsing. The roof is collapsing. It's 
filled with debris. They finally put the fire out and the, the stone structure still stood, though it too was terribly damaged. People in Paris, and not just Paris, wept when they saw it. If you see a picture, what you see is a building, an old building that had collapsed in on itself, filled with debris, charred. But you're also seeing one of the great buildings of all history. You're seeing this cathedral that was erected for the worship of God. So people around the world said, this cannot remain. And people started offering funds. I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars in order to rebuild the universe, or excuse me, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And it, experts say it will take time. It'll take five, 10 years to finally undo the damage. But they're going to do it. Why are they going to do it? Because it is this great cathedral. And see, that's what it is with human beings, even sinful human beings. We are created as image bearers. We bear the image of God. We are created to worship God, to be filled with God, to have everlasting fellowship with God. There is a creational goodness about human beings that is not completely eviscerated by the sins we have committed. Sometimes people misunderstand that. There's actually a term in theology called total depravity. Have you ever, how many of you have heard the term? Total depravity. And a lot of people think that term means that people are as evil as they could possibly be. There's not a good thing about them. They are sinners through and through, utterly corrupt. All my righteousness is as filthy rags, is the verse that's quoted out of context to support that idea. That is not what that doctrine called total depravity means. What total depravity means is simply this, that our whole person has been affected by sin. Our mind, our will, our emotions, all of us is affected by sin. Therefore, we need redemption. It doesn't mean that we are totally bad, that there's nothing good about us. That's that orthodox overreaction to, to the proud, entitled person. Not so. We're created by grace. We are cathedrals that have been damaged by sin but we continue to have value to our God. Here's the way you might think of it. We are sinners, true, absolutely, and people need to know that. Those who feel entitled to whatever they want, that they deserve everything they want, they need to be reminded that they are sinners. We are sinners, but we're also beloved, forgivable, and redeemable. We are unworthy, but we are not worthless. Far from it. According to Peter, we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Someone thought us worth it. That someone happens to be God who created us worth the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, we're worth it. We're just sinners. Well, we're worth it to God. The very fact he sends Christ tells us something about our worth before God. So we are unworthy, but we are not worthless. We are valuable. We are human, all too human, with all the faults and frailty and folly that goes with being human beings. But the Bible says that we, those who follow Christ, we will one day be resplendent with the glory of God. Think of that. We will share his glory, completely redeemed, and we will then be all that God intends for us to be. Now, these are truths that everyone needs to take to heart, but I want to talk right now to parents because this is what you need to teach your children. You need to teach them both sides of the paradoxical humanity that they possess. In other words, they are sinners and they need the grace of God because they do need forgiveness, but they also need to know there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is love. They are wanted. They need to know both of those things. They need to know that they are not worthy, that everyone doesn't have to bow down to them, that they don't get whatever they want whenever they want it. You don't want to train little narcissists. There are people today who are training their children to be narcissists. They're overreacting to a way of raising children back in the day that was harsh and rejecting, where people tried to break the will of the little sinners. It's true. It's true. You have to break their will. But they're saying to their children, oh, you're wonderful. You're, you're the best. You can do anything you want. They just pour on the praise and everything they deserve because they're so wonderful. And you just create a narcissist. But you don't want to do that. But at the same time that you tell them that they're not worthy because like everyone else, they're sinners, you let them know they are worth the blood of Jesus Christ and that they are worth everything to you, that you will lay down your life for them. So they need to hear both. And they need to know that they are human. They are human. So no, they're not the most beautiful people in the world. And they're not the most intelligent. And they're not the most talented. They have all kinds of limitations. They will do things that... <laughs> that leave them embarrassed years ahead as they look back on what they did. They'll see that. But then you let them know that they are beloved and they too will share the glory of God. See, children need to learn both sides of this. They need to know. You don't want to create narcissists, but you also don't want to create shame-based people. There's a radical middle here. And that's where the gospel is, right there in that radical middle. The grace of God that creates us in his image and the grace of God that restores us when that image is marred. That's what we want children to know. And of course, that's what we all need to know. That's what we all need to know. It's so easy 
It's so easy if you were, if you were raised in a shaming environment to hear the gospel in the wrong way where it ceases to be good news. It's all about what a sinner you are. And you hear about grace, but grace just seems to be a reminder of how you don't deserve anything. You've got to put that away and trust that God has created you for himself and you have value and worth. And on the other side, if you feel such resentment and such anger because you think God has failed you and other people have failed you and everybody's against you and life is not good, there is no way out of that darkness by trying to convince everybody you're right. You're not, nothing's going to move because you keep pushing on it, saying how unfair it's been. It's not going to change. The only way out of that is to recognize that God is good and God will enter your life if you invite him in, but you have to humble yourself and accept his grace on his terms. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent to us the Lord Jesus Christ and that through the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, we have been purchased redeemed, saved. And Father, we know that you do it because you do love us, that you have created us fearfully and wonderfully. Lord, may you teach us gratitude. Lord, that we would begin to recognize the surprising kindnesses in our lives and we would recognize your goodness to us. Lord, may we May we rise out of the darkness of complaint, of resentment. And instead, Lord, in everything we do, in everything we say, may we give thanks. May we learn to rejoice as we give thanks in all circumstances. And Lord, may you even now, for those who are here, who perhaps have not yet found a an authentic relationship with you, would you bring them to that point of surrender at this moment? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.